Welcome to Energy Matters, where we explore alternative health in the Pioneer Valley. I'm your host, Caroline Rutterman, and I'm a Reiki professional and intuitive in Northampton, Massachusetts. For the past nine years, I've been teaching people how to use their intuition and helping them reduce stress and anxiety. Together, we'll talk with other practitioners and learn how they bring health and healing to the Pioneer Valley. Let's do this. Hey, welcome, welcome, everyone. You are listening to Energy Matters, and I am your host, Caroline Rutterman. We have a great show for you today. We are here with Jesse Groneman, who is a home birth midwife, birth and postpartum doula. Jess, tell us, t- tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. I am a home birth midwife, um, trained as a CPM, but I'm currently in, in active status. Um, I'm a communi- community herbalist a birth and postpartum doula, and I'm currently studying to become a craniosacral therapist, which will be wrapping up soon in a couple of months. Very exciting. How long have you been uh, training to do the the craniosacral work? It's a three-year program, and it ends in November. It's a biodynamic craniosacral program. Ah, uh, what what is the biodynamic craniosacral? I'm not familiar with that. There's a there's a slight differentiation in that the um, craniosacral work um, primarily um, inspired by the Upledger Institute focuses on the spinal cord and the head you know the head and the um, the whole um, central nervous system but biodynamics um, and there's more manipulation involved there's more um, moving of the bones but with biodynamic craniosacral sacral work, um, the practitioner is not manipulating and um, uses the entire body or works with the entire bo- body rather and uses their own body as an instrument of um, resonance. So it's just a slightly different um, approach. And there's there's a lot more to say about that. Um, Very cool. Yeah, if it's a three-year program, I'm sure there's a lot to, lot, lot of ins and outs to that. So as I was looking over your bio, you know, I I really love how you talk about birth. And there was a quote um, that you that you wrote that said, birth can be many different things and have many different faces. Can you tell us about how you understand this? Sure. Um, So birth remains one of the great medical mysteries in that we don't know when or how labor begins. Uh, and there's lots of points at which there's inherent mystery um, around birth. And that's one of the things I love about it. Um, I believe that birthing energy sort of like a, a stone, when you drop a stone in water and the ripples continue out, I believe that the birthing energy is actually ignited at conception and is a continuation that unfolds and culminates with birth. So as opposed to birth being its own separate thing and you know the three trimesters and delineating all these things, I believe that it's a continuation, that it's a, um, it's a whole, there's a wholeness to the whole process of birth um, and energy around birth. Um, and that it, it continues on, that the unfolding continues on really through the fourth trimester and throughout the life and relationship of the parent or parents and child. So at each step of the journey, um, there are some things that we can point to that are objectively similar, obviously, between births or between pregnancies. Um, 
but we never know what the subjective experience will be for either the the birther or the baby. Hmm. Um, so, and also just a side point, we must bear in mind that the, the two have unique experiences, the birther and the baby. They're, they're different experiences um, as they go through this journey. The baby navigates, perceives, and is imprinted by birth through their own sensibilities. And this is chemically and energetically informed by the birthing parent's experience. But what I want to convey is just that the baby has their own experience. They're imprinted possibly quite differently than the birthing parent may um, so getting back to the question, um, there are joys and there are struggles and there are possible traumas that can be inherent within any, within any person's birth journey. Um, but where those joys and struggles and traumas lie are going to be unique and individual for each person and each baby. Um, and the unfolding of all three can take a lifetime to ripen. So one of the things that I love about being a birth worker is, again, as I stated at the beginning, the incredible, incredible amount of mystery and diversity of expression and beauty that is inherent, inherent in any set of patterns and situations that arise within pregnancy and labor, but also postpartum. And postpartum is very near and dear to my heart as a birth worker. Um, it's just a very salient time and such an incredible honor to witness. Can you... Can you sh- um, share a couple of examples of how of maybe two wildly different births that you have either uh, participated or experienced firsthand? Yeah. I think that I'll share um, n- maybe not so much specific births um, because there's so many, but um, more of a general kind of way that a birth can go. Um, the majority of births that I've been to I, you know, I've been able to help. I've been able to get water. I've been able to, um, you know, help guide. And certainly, you know, I'm doing all the normal checks of checking on the baby and, you know, all of, all of the things to make sure that everything is within the safety net of, um, of what would, you know, keep a birth safe at home. But rarely do I have a birth where, um, just, just getting back, what I'm trying to say is that most births don't, although I'm there to kind of safeguard and I'm there to, you know, support, most births I'm not needed at. Hmm. And I just, I think that's an important point. And that doesn't mean that I, I'm, I mean, I support anyone's choice to have an unassisted birth. Um, th- theoretically, I would never choose that myself. I think it really is important to have a practitioner there doing all these things. But I do think it's really important to say that when you screen um, people, birthing people out for um, any complications in pregnancy or anything that might arise in labor, and you know, there are certainly things that don't allow me to um, continue with a home birth um, with a particular client, um, when you have um, a low-risk population, most births unfold as they're supposed to on their own without an intervention or even necessarily help from me. Hmm. And so I think that that's important. So um, that's the majority of births that I've attended. Um, And then there are some births um, on the other side that 
can get really complicated, um, whether that means that we transport or whether that means that we don't transport. It's not always, um, it's sometimes it's a, um, emotional, psychological challenges that we have to get through. Um, and the emotional, psychological challenges, what, what do those look like uh, for, for some different birthers? Um, well, just so diverse. I mean, the, the act of opening up um, as much as you need to open up physically, but also emotionally and spiritually mm. to bring another life in um, is going to pose different challenges for different people. And um, I guess I'll just say, sadly, so, some, of, some of what we see is people dealing with trauma, past trauma mm. that surfaces. Um, um, and so, you know, and, and that is often sometimes something we can work with at home. We, you know, with, we use homeopathy and we use um, different, different techniques. And we've, you know, often talk about it before the birth happens and prenatally. Um, but then there's obviously physiological stuff that can come up too, where, um, um, you know, some of which means that we have to transport and some of which means that we deal like, for example, with a hemorrhage, if somebody bleeds postpartum, um, that's largely not always, but largely something we deal with at home. Mm -hmm. If we can keep it, if we can keep it safe. Yeah. Um, so, so those, I'm just kind of backing up a little bit, all of those things have huge, all of those junctures, um, and the uniqueness, um, have against, um, emotional, possibly, you know, spiritual, psychological, and physical um, imprints on both the birther and the baby um, that are unique. It's unique in every birth and, and a person's perception of what, I'll give, I'll give you one really salient example, okay. using that word again. Myself, I, my first birth um, was 12 hours. So it wasn't, it was pretty average in terms of length. Um, I really enjoyed labor. Pushing was hard. My, my son was um, 10 pounds, four ounces, and he came out posterior with two hands above his head. Oh, man. <laughs> it, was, it was intense. So pushing was really intense for me. Um, but labor wasn't so hard. And I actually really enjoyed the labor. Um, with my daughter, and this is the one I want to tell this story I want to tell you about. She, um, she just came really fast. She was born within an hour and a half. Oh my goodness. And, um, she was ready just, for this world. Yeah. She just came, she just came right through and she was born in the call and she, um, she was just ready to be here. And, I think her experience of her birth was pretty, it was fast for her, I think, but in talking, she's five now talking to her. I think that, I think it was pretty fine for her. Um, I, I don't know, but it seems like she doesn't have a lot of baggage around that. But for me and everyone would say, Oh, aren't you lucky? You had an hour and a half birth. And my midwives were there for 10 minutes before she was born. It was oh actually goodness. really stressful, <laughs> yeah. way more traumatizing than my son's birth way more. And I didn't, I mean, I think it's just good to remember that you never know how something's going to hit someone. It was, it was literally traumatizing for me. It took me four days to land um, my husband as well. Um, 
I also bled. But anyways, my point is that you just never know. You just never know how it's going to hit someone. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating field for that reason. Um, do you, yeah. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you typically do? I, I know that you mentioned how oftentimes the labor goes pretty smoothly and your assistance is, is often just in presence and being there and having that, mm-hmm. um, that practitioner who knows what they're doing. Um, yeah. But what, what is, um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about the process of being a home birth midwife and uh, what a birth doula typically does uh, for somebody? A lot of the behind the scenes stuff that maybe um, other people don't necessarily see. So, so there's a, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question entirely, but there's a difference between being a home birth midwife and a doula um, in that obviously doulas are not, well, they may attend home births, but they're not medically responsible. Okay. Um, so doulas primarily, but not entirely attend births in the hospital and are um, emotional, physical support and advocacy role. Okay. Um, and so... I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. Can you restate it? <laughs> yeah, I guess I was just kind of curious about um, what it is the what what's the work that you do, um, like for for a woman and the family, or uh, for the person and the family who are about to give birth or during the whole birthing process. Okay, I guess I guess my question is differentiating between putting my hat on as a midwife and putting my hat on as a doula. Right, because um, they're very very separate roles. Two different things. Because as a midwife, I do full prenatal care. Um, and as a doula, you know, so there's, I do all the routine visits, whereas somebody might have an appointment with their OBGYN um, here and there during their pregnancy. I'm the primary person holding their, their case um, and referring or um, um, consulting if needed. And as a doula, I meet with a, um, I meet with a family or, or a, a, a birthing person two to three times before the birth. And we come up with, well, usually three times because the initial meeting is a free consultation. And then there's two to three meetings before the birth where we're um, getting to know one another and coming up with, you know, birth plan and making sure that, you know, it's very individualized. The care is, you know, not, um, it's very individualized. So we have to come up with what it looks like for this particular person um and family um when somebody is when you're when you're crafting that um those particulars for the family what are the type of things that you're looking for that differentiate one one person's desire for for safety here or there like what is what does that look like when you're when you're crafting those um those different areas Mm of um of desire for how people want to have their birth yeah well, so the way I work as a midwife and the way I work as a doula in terms of advocacy is that I value informed choice. So um, there's a lot of education involved in both roles where at any juncture, choices need to be made or need to be thought about before the birth and planned for. There's a ton of information and education that goes into that. And there's a couple of hard lines that I have as a midwife for sure, but, and just things I won't budge on, but most of the major choices that need to be made are, are choices. Um, so we look at what the risk benefit ratio is, um, 
And it really is uh, a dialogue between the two people, you know, between me and, and the birthing person and the family. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's just, a, it's a process of getting to know one another. It's very individual. And um, also, you know, the relationship is at the heart of it. So there's a lot I can't really describe and say, um, because it really is in both cases developing a relationship. It's such, um, it's such um, intimate work when you're there with somebody giving birth that um, it can't all be quantified before. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of nonverbal stuff that goes on in building that relationship. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean, it's about getting comfortable with the person that mm -hmm. you're going to have a really big life-changing experience with. So that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you kind of, you touched on uh, desiring to offer a unique freedom of expression earlier, um, this unique freedom of expression. Can you talk a little bit about what, what you mean specifically by that? Sure. Um, it, so, yeah. So what I mean by that, that each birth has a unique freedom of expression and that that's what ideally as a birth worker I am and many of us are trying to protect and um, not really guide because the, the um, I don't mean protect and guide, guide, it has its own guidance. And so it just needs to be basically protected and not interrupted. Um, is that during the actual birthing process or is that leading up to all the midwife and doctor's appointments? And um, at, at what point do you feel like yeah. there's an infringement? I, mean, I, I think it's just true. I think it's just true of human beings in general <laughs> that we have, you know, um, we have an innate state that um, embodies our wholeness and health and Specifically, what I mean is in a birth, when you attend a birth, there's, um, it is a different, it is a different space that you enter into um, than somebody who is not in labor, even if they're pregnant. Um, so what I mean is that with each birth, um, it, it feels to me like there's an energetic blueprint, so to speak, or a range of natural expression that the energy pattern of a particular birth with a particular person um, would most easily take. Um, so that's what I mean by freedom of expression. That um, so so as I stated said before, our job as birth workers is simply to protect and advocate for that expression and to also guard that energy. And sometimes that looks like do quote unquote doing something that might look like offering a massage or that might look like, uh, you know, it's certainly in a home birth, it does look like checking the baby's heart tones. That's protecting the freedom of expression and making sure that we're in the range of normal. Um, it's largely a wordless space because um, oftentimes when women are in labor, they are not in their frontal lobe. They are not in their, they're in their animal brains and, or ideally that's where we want them to go as mm. they get deeper in. Um, 
And so it's largely nonverbal. It's largely, you know, using the heart and using the hands and sensing what needs to be done. Um, how, how do you bring people into their, their animal brains or how, how do you help to shift uh, birthers get into that place instead of the frontal lobe? Or does that just happen biologically during the birth well, time? It's different. It's different for everyone. And some people have more challenge with it. Um, but again, mostly I think doing less is better than doing more, I guess is what I'm trying to get at is that any word, any action, any touch is, in my mind, necessarily considered an intervention. Mm. Obviously, it runs the gamut all the way to like big interventions in the hospital. But literally anything that you bring to the space, um, I see as an intervention. So working really carefully not to interrupt the train that the woman is on and and the train really does lead to um, a baby a nonverbal it leads to a baby and it, <laughs> it also it, it leads to a state a, a state um a different state of mind and and everyone who I'm talking to who has had a baby knows exactly what I'm talking about I have um, not had a baby before so I yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to understand the process a little bit um, because you're, you're talking about this wordless state and this energetic shift mm-hmm. um, and this this shift of brain patterns as well mm-hmm. so um, which I am familiar with when I go into uh, into an altered state whether it's dream yeah. work or Reiki or yeah. um, I shift into those states States, but I this is really interesting um, to hear more about it and I'm like it's like yeah. oh it's that wordless state how do you describe it <laughs> you know I mean I think I think it um I think it just involves uh, you were asking how how do I help a woman get into that state and I think primarily it involves doing nothing and being uh and and at least from a starting point obviously you might do something you might you know offer a suggestion or you might um, you know, but, but not, you know, really recognizing that as soon as you walk into a birth room, you're in an alter, you should, you should enter into your own altered state as much as you can so that you, uh, the birth, the birth worker can really sense what is needed so that, um, you know, it's not an everyday state. So we're not adding something that's unnecessary to the picture so that that freedom of expression can express itself. I think, I think, and this, and this is what I was trying to get at before, which is, or, or had, wasn't trying to, but just to extend the idea of this freedom ex- of expression. I think that most complications arise in labor when that freedom of expression is altered in some way. And so I think it's just really important to, to be witness to that freedom of, of expression and to get to know its feeling and texture so that we can augment it as opposed to interrupt it. Um, mm. I don't know if that, is that making sense? It does, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Jess, can you talk about the, the first birth that you witnessed? Yeah, um, the very first birth that I witnessed was my younger brother, He's five years younger than me. And my mom, my mom had a very intervention, interventive first birth with my older brother. And then my birth was in the hospital, but it was a natural birth. So she had this evolution where 
my younger brother's birth was a home birth. And um, I truly don't know if I was actually in the room when he came out. <laughs> mm. I think she might have sh- shooed me away a little bit for a few minutes, but I was there shortly after and right outside the door. Wow. Um, and it had a big influence on me. I remember the midwife really clearly. Um, she had a very solid, steady energy, and I was intrigued by that. Um, I've also been present at the birth of a, ha- uh, a handful of goats at my dad's farm in Idaho. And he has taught me a lot about the birth, you know, birthing animals, helping animals give birth. Um, so that's been kind of fun in our relationship to kind of talk about birth, human and animal. Um, how how does your father, do you have similar views on that you share with your father on, on birthing? Like where, where do you have overlap or do you have contrast with how you approach birthing? No, there's a, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, when you're, when you're dealing with animal births, you do really get to see, I mean, there's, he deals with complications for sure, but again, mostly, you know, you, animals just, they just do it. They know how to do it. I think that there's a, maybe it's our frontal cortex, something, something can get us sometimes into trouble around, um, perception and how we, um, I think there's a like more of a fear factor. I feel like animals, the the birds that I've witnessed and what he talks about, you know, the births tend to be fairly uncomplicated and they just, they just do their job and it's an everyday thing, you know? Right. Um, and so, but there, there is a lot of, there's, we've had some fun conversations about it. Oh, yeah. that sounds like you guys have a really great relationship. Yeah. Um. So, so I know you said that you you witnessed this, your very first birth of your baby brother um, at the age of five. Um, when did you know that you were actually going to get into this work of being a midwife and folding in um, the skills that you bring to the table with being uh, a birth and postpartum doula? Um, how did how did you know that this was your work? It was a it was a long evolution for me when I um, and I have to tell this story. Um, it's pretty vulnerable, but at eighteen, I had a I had an abortion. And I, it was an important juncture in my life, as is often the case. Um, I think that if I hadn't chosen that route, my life would have taken a very different course. And um, there was a lot of addiction in my family at the time. And I, I suspect I would have entered, you know, I would have been a single mom for sure. And I, would, <laughs> I probably would have um, self-medicated at certain points. Um, so... I see that as a big juncture in my life and a very um, empowering decision. And I, although a very difficult decision, I ended up um, being fairly alone in that choice. And I ended up at a clinic where there was essentially a doula there for every person who was having an abortion. And, And it was amazing for me to be attended by somebody so caring and loving, um, and that had a big impact on me. And then shortly after that, I went to herb school in the Bay Area at the California School of Herbal Studies. And I met a number of midwives there. And I think I was still emotionally healing from that process and that letting go um, without being fully aware of it. And these midwives came in and talked to us about um, about um, reproductive uh 
reproductive health and um, reproductive choices and how home birth, you know, is a reproductive choice. And um, it just, it was, it was a moment for me where I think I had a lot of self-loathing that I was dealing with and, and it just, it was this, this voice that kept, it was 19 and 20 and um, it just wouldn't let me go. And I, I was, became fascinated by it, but I also was terrified of becoming a midwife. You know, I, yeah, there was a lot to deal with there for a couple of years in, in, in setting my feet on the path. Um, and shortly after that, I met a midwife who I started not really apprenticing with, um, but it was like a pre-apprenticeship where I just hung out with her and she talked to me and she taught me the songs that she sang. She would make up a new song for each baby that was born that she would sing. Oh my gosh, to. that's and magical. I just became friends with her. I don't even remember how I met her. I think it was really, uh, yeah, just I felt like these people, these midwives kept coming into my life. Um, and by the time I was... Well, certainly by the time I was 22, 23, I knew it was what I wanted to do. I just, I, yeah, continued just to just meet with midwives and talk with them and do study groups. But um, I didn't know how. It's a very, um, becoming a home birth midwife, especially at that time, I'm probably like 23 years ago, something like that. There there weren't a lot of really clear avenues Um and really the only way to do it, at, one of the only ways, certainly the only affordable way to do it is, was to directly apprentice. Hmm. But finding that apprenticeship is challenging. And so it took me a couple of years. And then the first birth I went to as an adult um, was a friend of mine and she was having a home birth and she invited me because she knew I was interested and, and you know, she wanted to have me there. And I ended up meeting her midwives and really pretty much the next week I started apprenticing with them. Um, so that, that set my feet firmly on the path and I didn't look was, back from there. Yeah. Yeah. Birth. Now, yeah. Now yeah. You, what, what is the, what is the midwife apprenticeship look like? What is the day-to-day kind of activities that you're in skills that you're building Um is it that you're, yeah, tell me a little bit about, I'm so curious about that process. Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's really individual and um, a lot has changed in the last couple of years about apprenticeship there. Um, I won't go into all the legalities of it, but just on a simple, I'll just answer your simple question. Um, it's, you know, it looks different for everyone. I mean, it really is, um, something that's created between the two people. So my initial apprenticeship was 15 months in the Bay Area. And I participated in the birth, but I did not catch a baby in that time at all. I was I I was the second pair of hands that whole time. Um and and that and that involved a lot of things. I mean I went to all the prenatals, I went to the birth and I went to all the postpartums. Um, and I wasn't getting paid. It's all, you know, just volunteer. It's educational. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also did um, a pretty rigorous study group to, during that time um, with other midwifery students. Um, so, yeah, it looks different for different people. But, you know, you're basically you're basically just shadowing this person and the, the relationship that can evolve um, 
can be a really beautiful one in terms of um, if you find the right midwife who really embodies the qualities that you hope to bring to birth. Um, for me, it was a really good way to start my studies, to just have the hands-on heart connection with this person. Um, yeah. But it does really look different in every situation. Um, however, there are guidelines to follow. So the NARM uh, organization, the National um, Association of Registered Midwives, who give the CPM, Certified Professional Midwife, credential, um, they they oversee apprenticeships for the most part in this country. I mean, I, I think there are certainly apprenticeships happening uh, that are not under NARM, but there's a lot of guidelines in terms of what skills you need to have. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty rigorous process that you go through um, to create the standards. For the, for the more modern day apprenticeship? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Is that different state to state? Or did you say that was a national organization? It's a national organization and many states, maybe 24, probably a little bit more at this point. I haven't actually recently looked. States have taken the um, CPM requirements and certification as their licensing um, certification for the state. So it's it's state by state whether, like, uh, whether midwives are licensed or not. Um, in Massachusetts, we're not licensed. We've been trying to get licensed for probably close to 30 years now. Wow. And we've been blocked every time. Um, we've put thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into it. Uh, unfortunately, there are certainly powers that be in the medical world that don't really want to legitimize midwifery in this state. But also, um, there are midwives in this state who enjoy the freedom of practicing illegally, and they would rather not be licensed. So the community of midwives are, is pretty split on the issue. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, that's undermined our progress. Yeah. So, but but you're firmly in the camp of wanting to have the licensing. Yes, but not. Um, yes, you know, there's a lot of problems that can arise with licensing. Um, but but I have, I have firmly set my feet there. I have some misgivings about it too. In that, it just it really depends on how the licensure comes down the pike, and how um, like there are certain things that many in many states midwives. It depends on how conservative basically the board of midwifery ends up being, and and it gets dictated largely by to some degree by non-midwives. So we could lose VBACs, for example. And I think that's the thing I would really have a hard time with. A VBAC is a vaginal birth after a cesarean. And the rate of VBACs in this country is such that that's just, a, there's a lot of, a lot of birthing people who would not have access to a home birth through a licensing program. So we don't know for sure. You, you get the licensure and then the regulations come afterwards. And so the fear is that we would lose a lot of autonomy, essentially. Right. That's um, that's the risky. If, if you could find a way to yeah. uh, self-regulate or self-licensure, that would be ideal. But like you said, it's yeah. often you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. A complicated yeah. issue. So, 
Yeah. So it just, the, the good part about it would be that it would be the first step towards light, uh, insurance coverage. And ah. so for me, that's sort of where it comes down to is like access feels pretty important because right now home birth is anywhere between three to $5,000 in this state. And that's, and it's not very often, um, reimbursed by insurance. Sometimes little bits are, but a lot of people just can't afford that. And, um, so that does become an issue in my mind when we're talking about access and we're talking about autonomy, but a huge portion of the population doesn't have access economically. That's an issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the licensure really would create uh, the, be starting to pave the path towards accepting Mm -hmm. insurance and expanding access for more people. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking a lot about the importance of, postpartum care uh, and you I love the description of the the fourth trimester um, mm-hmm. can you talk about the web of support that you try to create through education and mentoring um, with a birthing parents family uh, and discuss the the need for for all of that sure yeah so I um, am very inspired by postpartum and um, feel that it's an under misunderstood under under supported period of time for birthing families um probably particularly now with COVID-19 I think about that a lot um recently I so I had been doing I've been doing postpartum work all the way through my apprenticeship for many many years um it's one of the ways that I supported myself through my apprenticeship um and training uh, subsequent training after that. And one of the things that always, I I mean, I love doing postpartum work, but I always, it's a, um, it's not, it's not financially accessible to most people. Um, And in fact, postpartum for me with my, with my son, it didn't feel accessible to me and I did not receive any postpartum care Um, because most postpartum doulas um, understandably and respectfully charged, you know, 25 to $35 an hour, which is the going rate. And after the birth of my daughter, the second time around, um, for me with both my births, postpartum was really where the juice was and where the challenge was (laughs) as well. Um, So I just, I, I, I started feeling just in the very first few weeks postpartum with my daughter, I started kind of getting this vision of how we could recreate postpartum care. Um, In a lot of cultures, Indian culture, Chinese culture, native culture, um, traditional Mexican culture, and others as well, more traditional cultures, have rituals that are applied postpartum Um, And usually there's a period of time that is considered a re-entry, kind of like a transition point so that, um, so that women can fully heal. It's not, so birthing people can fully heal. It's a, it's a pretty, um, pretty big journey (laughs) and lots of physical and emotional and spiritual changes. So um, oftentimes it's a, a, 30 to 40 day period of time where a birthing person does not leave 
they're, you know, maybe they don't leave their house or they, they have a, they have a limited, very slow unfolding into the world. Um, so that bonding can really, really take shape and um, nursing can get very well established and nourishment can happen and um, healing can happen. And in our culture, we don't have anything like that. Um, so my vision postpartum after my daughter was born um, was to create a mentoring uh, service for postpartum families so that instead of, I, you know, I, I, I still do provide postpartum care, traditional postpartum care and charge hourly, and I'm happy to do that. But I also wanted to offer the option of consulting with a birthing person's, you know, birthing family's community um, of choice and also family members, depending on what that looks like um, for each individual person or family and consulting with them and supporting them and providing the care um, so that instead of it being a paid for service, I'm actually educating a community on how to take care of postpartum people in a way that can be passed down as well. So that it, you know, my vision was that it could start a whole new revolution of us actually taking care of people postpartum. Um, that's a big vision. I love it. So, and then, you know, charging hourly for that, but I'm not, I'm not doing anything except supporting the whole, um, the whole web of support, essentially. What are, what are some things if people are, are listening now and maybe they're not quite ready to, um, maybe they're not able to afford services, but what are some things now that people can do um, to support birthers who've just had little babies and are, um, mm -hmm. you know, during this social distancing time with a COVID-19, yeah. um, what are some yeah. little tips or tricks that um, as friends and family members we can do to offer and kind of keep building that, that web mm -hmm. of support that you're talking about? Right. I think that's a really good question. Um, I, my heart is with birthing people right now. Um, and it's not being talked about as much as I believe it really should be. Um, I think people are really scared to go into the hospital. And then, like you said, the postpartum, it looks very different than, um, you know, a non-pandemic time for a lot of people. So some really simple things that can be done. Um, really, on a basic level, it's important to keep a postpartum person warm. And that means that and there's a, there's a tradition called mother mother roasting and I and there are a lot of ways in which practices um, around birth have not been inclusive, but that that's the phrase that people will use. But keeping the birthing postpartum person warm physically so that and 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 in some ways um, warmer than you would imagine. So. Um, you know, making sure the heat is up. Um, in a lot of traditional cultures, postpartum people will be put in saunas um, periodically on a, on a, you know, regular basis once a week. Um, but also thinking about warming foods. So not eating a lot of or any raw foods at all 
in the fourth trimester and particularly in the first month postpartum, thinking about warming soups and stews, um, that sort of thing, things that are really well cooked. Um, and also thinking about nourishing herbs and spices like cinnamon and ginger and cardamom and um, things like that. that. That's a really simple, basic um, way to nourish a postpartum person. Hmm. Um, there's also, you know, using hot water bottles, um, that sort of thing can be really helpful. And that's something we all can do. That's not something that you need a doula to do. But just knowing that in a lot of traditional cultures, postpartum, a person is considered to be very cold energetically. And that might mean that they're shivery and cold and feel cold, but on an energetic level, they're all, it's also regarded as a cold state. Hmm. So a doing, lot of nourishment. So a lot of nourishment and the mother roasting keeping them mm-hmm. extra warm and mm-hmm. get a get a sauna before that that baby comes out no not before a- well after no, the a- sauna, get a baby the sauna. get the sauna ready so that afterwards <laughs> yeah and not and I don't mean directly after I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't have a postpartum woman sauna for the you know and it, and when I say sauna I mean like a warm bath is fine with the saunas that they'll use postpartum are not like hot hot saunas um so not, you know, not like a sweat lodge or something, um, but, you know, the f- not for the first week. Um, so but this is why we need you so house- we can cut through all this, all yeah. the uh, ideas and complications with all these, these, uh, but, these things. But people should walk into the birthing room in the postpartum room and the postpartum room should be protected for about a month, ideally. And this is not achieve- achievable for everyone, but this isn't an ideal world. And it should be hot enough that you want to wear a tank top. Like it should be really warm. Um, so just just thinking about a lot of warmth in all ways. Yeah. So, um, and you kind of mentioned that uh, a lot of the postpartum care often goes unnoticed. Why do you think that this is? I think that... It, I mean, there's so much to say about that. I mean, I think that people with uteruses have not, I think birthing people have not been honored in our culture. And I think that part of that is productivity. I mean, there's there's so much to say about that. Um, I think that um, our culture has grown up I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a work ethic, there's a productivity ethic. And I also think that, and I think a lot of birthing people can recognize this sensation and will often talk about the sensation of, you know, feeling at the center of the universe when you're pregnant. And then when your baby is born, the attention goes to the baby. And understandably, but the thing is, is that the baby comes out of the birthing parent's body, but that baby is not separate at all. In the fourth trimester, you know, it's thought that humans are actually born a little bit early on a neurological level because our heads are larger um, as we've evolved. And the idea is that, you know, babies are born fairly immature and they, they're not separate from their parent, um, energetically, spiritually, emotionally, but I think in our culture, we see the baby as a product and see 
there's a there's almost a I think the postpartum person can they just get less less care than they need and I think there's just also a basic misunderstanding of what is happening physiologically and what it takes to fully recover after birth um it has lifelong implications for health when when somebody is not you know able to fully recharge their body on a mineral, you know, vitamin level, an energetic warming level, um, an emotional level. Um, there's sometimes an invisibility that can happen. Hmm. And it's, a, it's for me, that's why postpartum is, it feels it's very near and dear to my heart um, working with postpartum people, because to me, you know, Trauma during birth can happen in a lot of different ways. You can have the quote unquote perfect home birth and still have trauma lodged in your body from it. Um, and so can a baby, even if it looked externally quote unquote perfect. Hmm. And the thing is, is that, and, and a lot of people birthing in the hospitals, again, we have, you know, some great resources here in the Valley, but in other communities, there's a lot of trauma that can happen. And sometimes the trauma is necessary because there are emergencies that need to be taken care of. But regardless, it's an, an impactful time. People are very um, permeable to trauma. And I think about postpartum as the healing period of time. And I think it's really important you have a little window of time in which you can set a parent, a birthing parent, and their baby on the right track and on the right feet and well-bonded. And that carries through a lifetime. That's great. And I feel very passionate about that. Yeah, I hear that. That's amazing. So Jess, um, we are nearing the top of the hour. Uh, how can how can people find you and more about your work? Sure. I am working on a website. I don't have it live yet and probably won't for a little while now. Um, so I'm reachable through my email, which is Jesse. Groneman, J-E-S-S-I-E-G-R-O-N-E-M-A-N at gmail.com. Great. And I also have a full bio on Green River Doula Network. Um, and so there's more information about my training and philosophy there. Absolutely. And uh, all of that will be linked um, on uh, the show notes as well. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show, Jess. And, um, and we are, are closing out now, but I hope mm -hmm. you have a great weekend and, uh, and stay on thank the line you. and be well, everyone.